It's a shame there's no Victor Davis Hanson news peg. He man, when, oh, when was the last time? Here. Peg right here. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I, Mr. Uh, Mr. Cla- Mr. Two Nam Classical. Well, he became he became a Trump guy really quick, real quick. Yeah, yeah. good for him. It's good for you, Victor. He's, Always he's, evolve. He's one of the angry right. I uh, I worked for a year in Kurdistan. Oh yeah. For some reason, I was hired by a neocon university there until they did their belated diligence. <laughs> and fired by email, but uh, at the time, my office mate was a relatively sane right-winger, and he used to teach in one of those Virginia-Maryland universities that are on the right-wing circuit. And he said uh, VDH lectured there, and it was like 2006, 2007, and even they were admitting Iraq is not going well, and VDH was saying, yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) He tried to get VDH to say Bush had made at least one mistake. Like, for example, maybe he didn't kill enough people. (laughs) <laughs> yes, he did, <laughs> and that was straight down the line. I hadn't heard of him in e- from him in years, and then he recently had an article, I think, about California and how California is falling apart. And it, it was him going to the grocery store and complaining that everybody was using Snap cards. Like he's gone from be- talking about you know the Peloponnesian War to just complaining that somebody's buying a steak with food stamps. Yeah. That's where he always was. I, I would love to know someone who knew Victor Davis Hanson in his UC Santa Cruz days. That, is, that has comedy written all over yeah. it because he was there when that was the, the hippie campus of the hippie state <laughs> of the hippie era in American history. Yeah. And I'm trying to imagine VDH getting through it. I mean, there were people who survived that era on pure bile, but... <laughs> He was a classics major, and he, I hear he's pretty big and takes showers and all those socially advanced things. So <laughs> he, I suspect, was uh, having a bit of fun, and not all good, clean, right-wing fun, but you'll never hear about that. That's all the, I mean, Michael Savage, who's like, he's more, he's he more pivoted to like, yeah, he had sex with Ginsburg, he did all that shit. I mean, Alan all the, Ginsburg? Whoa. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And Ruth Bader. <laughs> this is not satire. You can't sue us for this. I'm prepared to defend this. In that court. would be the ultimate three way. Uh, John, you mentioned uh, when you were when you were teaching at that um, the the school in Kurdistan. Um, there was sort of like a neocon uh, outpost. I, I remember there in the article you no, or maybe it was on War Nerd. I forget when. One of the funniest stories at that time is when you talk. You were walking with the fellow professors, and one of them is guy who walked with like had a walking stick and a cane. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, the topic came on to the Simpsons. Yeah. And he was this kind of guy who was like still mad that Bart told his parents to eat his yeah. shorts or whatever. Yeah. And then you said like you just couldn't take it. And you were like, I think it's the finest American comedy writing of our generation. And he said, you said the guy just like slammed the stick down and was like, Harumph! and then yeah. just shuffled away. Well, he said something like, well, I think that's more an indictment of America. <laughs> praise for the Simpsons. Yeah, I said something broader than that. I said it was the, the best art. Uh, recently produced in America, and because uh, I'm fair, I mean that's a statement that would offend a lot of lefty artists too. But I, but I think it was. Um, it made me doubt individual writing, like novels and things. Like, why don't we all get a big group together and try to top each other? Well, you guys have done exactly. That. That's yeah. what we're doing. I, could, I couldn't have written our. Book. I'm always uh, getting yeah. top yeah. to my <laughs> uh, I think it really works. That's it. That's my favorite type of guy who exists on American <laughs> college campuses. You've talked about a lot, like the. American conservative who wishes he were a European conservative to the point that they'll use an unnecessary walking stick. <laughs> I had a guy like that. He didn't have the walking stick, but he did have a briefcase. 
and he would carry a, an umbrella like a walking stick, and he affected. He actually affected a British accent. Wow. And one time when it was raining, this was in Wisconsin. It was raining, and he said. Ah, good English weather. <laughs> Holy shit. English 101 weather. <laughs> going, going to Culver's and asking for tea. <laughs> and I got him really mad because he was expounding on Beethoven and how glorious he was. And I just said, uh, you know, tenacious tea is better than Beethoven. <laughs> that really is mad. usually the best way because all, all, they were in some sort of war with uh, a more hip affectation among academics. I know the profession way too well. Uh, and the, their, their enemies affected not to believe in the high-low culture distinction. Almost unanimously, they did believe in it, and they did believe that high culture was, was above low culture, but they pretended not to. And the tweedsters, as I call them, these guys, uh, didn't pretend to believe that. They just pretended to believe that everything went to hell in a basket at uh, fill-in date here. <laughs> When they debased silver coinage, or when they took <laughs> lead out of paint, or, or whatever. That I mean, that's the different. That's their entire European affectation, because the American, like the regular rank and file American right winger, is psychotically optimistic. They still have that siege mentality, but they're like, George Soros is against us. Uh, they're doing false flag shootings. They're going to turn my kids gay. Yeah. And also, we're going to win. We're going to beat the U.S. military. But those guys want to be European so bad that they become like Peter Hitchens, just eternal pessimists. Yes. Yes. I mean, I, I remember seeing a headline that Steve Bannon went to a conference of the French right wing and said, history is on our side. And I could just imagine the sneer that that guy <laughs> the French <laughs> Monsieur, our whole deal is that history is not on our side. It's like, we're waiting for the Bourbons to come back. <laughs> yeah. Well, I should probably um, introduce the show for this week and our guest. Uh, this one's been a long time coming, in case you haven't picked up on it already. Uh, joining us today is the War Nerd, a.k.a. Gary Brecher, a.k.a. John Dolan. John, thanks so much for being with us. Well, I'm honored to be on the world's biggest podcast. Absolutely. The number one podcast yeah, in the world. Correct. 10 million subscribers. Yep. Uh, I actually just checked the numbers. It's uh, 20 million as of today. <laughs> Holy man. John, Blown you're up. doing big numbers yeah, thank for you, us. Dude. Yeah, this the, episode isn't even out yet. The Brecher bump. Everyone yeah. knows. <laughs> <laughs> well, so uh, it's, uh, it's good that we have you uh, on deck today because uh, we, we talked a little bit about in our last episode the uh, U.S. airstrikes in Syria. It's sort of on people's minds at the moment as you know Trump launches another along with France and the U.K., a uh, volley of cruise missiles at Assad's chemical weapons facilities or airfields. It's been hard to sort of suss out exactly what happened or what was hit or ca any kind of casualty numbers on it. But I want to talk to you about that. But before we go there, I, I was hoping that you could, for our listeners who are nerds of the regular variety, not the war variety, could you do your best to sort of narrate for us the Syrian conflict to date? its players uh, and how it's shaken out thus far, like in now where we find ourselves. Yeah. It's a convoluted narrative, a very strange one. Um, it's especially strange for me because when it, when it all kicked off, I was in a provincial town in Saudi Arabia called Najran and I was getting some bizarre views on it there. 
but it, it kicked off around 2011 and it seemed to fall in one of those fatal springs that Western media are always promoting. Uh, there had been Arab regimes, regime is the key noun, and they'd been falling, and there was a theory that Syria would go like the next domino because it had a long history of being allied with Iran, which made it Satan incarnate, and it was indeed ruled by a clan, the uh, Assad clan of the uh, Alawite minority sect who'd once been the most uh, despised people in Syria during the Ottoman regime, and by a strange fluke, you get this sometimes, when the colonial rulers have to pick a tribe. They often pick the, the most degraded one because they figure it will work with them. Everyone else hates it. So they, be, they come into power, but they find they're riding the tiger because the other groups have not gone away, and they're angry, um, mortally angry. And that was the situation in 2011. But at the time, no one was reporting the ethnic difference. And I remember asking a, a Syrian Kurdish colleague in Najran, why hasn't Assad fallen yet? Because he, everyone knew, uh, in air quotes, that he was going to fall. And it was always Assad as if he personally were the regime, as Putin personally is Russia now. And it was assumed that he would fall soon. But what we didn't realize is that unlike, say, Gaddafi in uh, Libya or uh, Mubarak in Egypt, he wasn't the representative of a beleaguered ethnic group. Uh, he was the representative of a beleaguered ethnic group. They were not. So they didn't really have that to the death backing. But the Alawites in Syria, Assad's people, began to see themselves uh, facing a genuine existential threat, not as a catchphrase, but as a fact. And even those who hated Assad started uh, fighting with Assad because at the same time as uh, riots were breaking out. There were large quantities of arms being shipped in, and many of the uh, people getting those arms were sectarians uh, who believed that Syria was a Sunni Arab state, and anyone who wasn't both Sunni and Arab had no place in it. Uh, this is something that people have a hard time dealing with. Uh, and I think sectarianism is a little hard for, for Americans to take quite as seriously as, say, skin color prejudice. Uh, it doesn't seem as real to them, but there are parts of the world where it's quite real. I didn't understand that until I went to Saudi and Kuwait, and uh, it's quite real. And there had always been posters in times of stress in Sunni neighborhoods saying, um, Christians to Beirut, Alawites to the graveyard. And uh, it's no joke for those people. You know, they, they were scared. So the regime responded in a heavy-handed, stupid, brutal way. We will never know what percentage of uh, genuine democratic activists were involved in what came to be known as the Free Syrian Movement, the Free Syrian Army. But it soon became clear that uh, despite what the CIA and the Saudis kept telling us, the strongest factions in the Sunni opposition were pretty straightforwardly sectarian and did not see that it was their job to create a multi-ethnic Syria. It was their job to cleanse Syria of this jumped-up little uh, cultist group, the Alawites. Uh, so there was not a lot of mercy on either side. And long around 2012, when I began to get an understanding of, of the ethnic and sectarian and geographical dimensions of this, I predicted that this would 
turn into a multi-sided fractal war uh, because a lot of groups that come up in a struggle like this want to control the neighborhood. And it's uh, the biggest, most charismatic, strongest guys in the neighborhood or brothers in the neighborhood, clan in the neighborhood, ends up controlling the neighborhood. And they don't really want to go much beyond that. So Syrian Sunni neighborhoods very quickly evolved into uh, armed enclaves. And they were well able to defend those enclaves, but they were not part of a single command, and that would come back to hurt them very badly. At one point, uh, CIA estimates were that there were 1,200 militias in Syria, and it was almost impossible to get those 1,200 militias to do anything together. So as you saw in, in other big sectarian wars, even, especially in the, the 30 Years War, where you know the Swedes come in and the Swedes have no local allegiance or interest in anybody, no mercy for the locals, and they become a, a disproportionately powerful force. So the foreign jihadi forces, ultimately Islamic State, become the best shock troops that the Sunni uh, rebels had. Now, this is around uh, 2013 when this started to be clear, and there was tremendous resistance in acknowledging this from the Western press uh, because the, the the old lie about the Free Syrian Army being a bastion of democracy was, was still there. I'm not saying the Alawite regime was a bastion of democracy either. If, if you want a bastion of something like decency, you have to go to Rojava and you have to go to the YPGJ. Uh, but among the other players in Syria, there wasn't a lot of mercy. Um, the one thing that I've talked to Syrians about that, that made them favor Assad over the Sunni militia is that you probably wouldn't be killed for your sectarian allegiance. And also there was one set of rules because there's a unified command. Maybe the worst of being ruled by the Sunni militias was that they changed block by block, one nationality to another, one uh, sect to another. And when you have people who really believe, again, this is, this is something I didn't know until I lived over there for a while, is when you have people who really believe, uh, it's frightening. Because for one thing, they never agree about what they believe. Uh, in theory, they should. And, uh, unity is a word that comes up a lot in the Abrahamic religions. And it's supposed to be one way, one faith. But um, if you ever sat through an argument about whether you're allowed to eat uh, when traveling during Ramadan, and I was sitting in a grading market while a grading meeting while that was supposed to be happening. And it's like, it's 40 minutes and we haven't graded a single paper yet. I mean, those arguments are real. And if they become grounds for uh, joining one militia or another or sparing someone or not sparing someone, it's, it's frightening. Um, this was the case again in the 30 years war, uh, not just arguments between uh, Catholics and Lutherans, but increasingly as the thing fragmented between Lutherans and Calvinists, and Calvinists and uh, more Calvinists than thou sects. Um, and uh, the more the war evolved into this brutal sectarian struggle, the more I started remembering one of Nietzsche's great aphorisms, which is, uh, it is not their love for us, but their lack of faith that prevents, for, prevents today's Christians from burning us. Uh, and that when there is real faith, and there is real faith in, in the Middle East, uh, and to a very impressive degree, it produces great virtue and virtue contests especially among women, as my wife discovered. And it also produces um, some very scary um, sectarian divides. Again, I think this is hard for us to understand. Having been a downwardly mobile American Irish Catholic, I, I strongly wished for uh, 
persecutors to come to our church um, <laughs> from the Ulster Defense Association or something and uh, start throwing firebombs at us. And it, it never happened. Uh, it would have been far more interesting than uh, Father Keevney going on and on. But uh, it, it began to seem unreal to me, too. Like, that stuff is over. That stuff is not over. So uh, this Syrian regime, the Alawite and uh, its collaborators, if you want to call them that, uh, was fighting on, but it was losing manpower. Uh, the pool of Alawites was very small. And one thing about the Syrian war is the middle class did not want to fight in this war, whether Sunni, Alawite, Druze, Christian. They were not fighting in this war. They left if they had the money to leave. What was left was village kids joining the Sunni militia full of rage at the, you know, what Walter Subcheck would call those rich uh, <laughs> In the cities and um, on the Alawite side, uh, people who just had their back against the wall or owed the Assad clan something. By uh, 2014, what happened was that Islamic State exploded out of nowhere in both uh, Syria and Iraq. It had transplanted itself from Iraq because it was always an Iraqi organization from Iraq to Syria HQ'd itself in Raqqa and then blasted back east across the desert into Iraq and just rolled up the very expensive American-funded Iraqi army like it wasn't there. Those people fled. So now, 2014, Iraq is, northern Iraq is mostly uh, divided between the Iraqi Kurds, very different organization from the Syrian Kurds, and uh, Islamic State. Uh, Syria is... Eastern Syria is mostly in the hands of Islamic State, who are also rolling up the other Sunni militia because there was no coordination among Sunni militias, mostly just uh, rivalry, backbiting, and uh, blood feuds. And then the next move is that Islamic State is beginning to come down the hills into Latakia. Uh, Islamic State and Jabhat al-Nusra, the, the other big Sunni militia, and into the coastal hills where uh, the Alawites live. Uh, at that point, the Russians decide um, we can't let a loyal client state um, be decimated. And what would have happened if they'd taken Latakia? It doesn't bear thinking about It would have been pretty awful. So it looked pretty bad for the Alawites, the people on the sort of the coast of Syria, the city people, the people who are connected to the Assad government until uh, Russia got involved and put their thumb on the scale with their air force. And I remember you talking about this on, on War Nerd when people were sort of asking in the, in the media and elsewhere, you know, what, what is the Russian strategy here? What are they playing at? And, he, and you said, if you look at what they're, the targets they're bombing, what they're doing is that they're carving out a tiny, that coastline of their people they support, they, the Alawite sort of client state on the coast and preserving that um, and, and bombing everyone else. Yeah, that was, that was it. It was pretty straightforward. And it pretty much worked. It worked. Um, I think the maps didn't help most people because uh, they showed Islamic State like a Rorsach blot uh, splatter all over Syria. But most of what it held was desert. Uh, people in Syria live on that coastal strip uh, where there's occasionally some rainfall. And uh, then they lived down the Euphrates Valley, but that's about it. Um, so Russia was trying to uh, reassert Alawite control over that coastal strip. And most people in that coastal strip, especially the minorities, the Druze, uh, the Christians, were 
more or less in favor of that, even though many of them had good reason to hate Assad and his people because they were terrified of what was coming from over the hills. By this time, Islamic State had been recruiting very effectively among a very weird bunch of uh, foreign jihadis. Uh, people always want you to profile them. They're really hard to profile, except they were young and male and uh, in the mood to do something. Uh, and it was a, kind of a bad combination. And uh, so Russia didn't immediately start bombing Islamic State, which led to one of the many things that was said about Russia. First, oh, it's a quagmire. They're done. This is Russia's Vietnam. This is Russia's Afghanistan too. This is whatever. Didn't turn out to be true. Uh, or Russia's in cahoots with Islamic State because they're not bombing Islamic State. They're bombing these other Sunni militias. Well, if you looked at the map carefully, Islamic State was mostly in the east. The United States was uh, bombing Islamic State in outside Kobani by that time, beginning in, uh, I think, the winter of uh, 2014. Um, and the situation resolved pretty quickly since then into uh, the Sunni uh Militias pushed back from the coastal strip that Russia considered uh, worth keeping. Rojava, the Kurdish-led secular state in the north, pushing south, to everyone's surprise. Uh, after Erdogan said it, Kobani was about to fall, it, instead of falling, started moving south with a lot of help from the USAF. And then Islamic State in control of uh, most of inland eastern Syria. Uh, meanwhile, the, the, the only clear losers in all of this were the multitude of groups uh, in the Sudi militias backed by uh, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, uh, uh, Kuwait, and the UAE, who just did not have the muscle or the determination of Islamic State or, or Jabhat al-Nusra. It's not a surprise, really, that if you're going to do a jihad, the people who really believe in the jihad are going to do best at it. And the people who are a patchwork of neighborhood gangs or militias are going to be satisfied to hold their neighborhoods and not want to go get killed for somebody else's neighborhood. Yeah, the uh, a lot of the non-ISIS uh, rebel groups, they it seemed like in around 2011 to 2012, they could really just, you know, let their freak flag fly. They Because I think that their thinking was, and correctly at the time, like, no one's really going to pay attention to what we say here or what we do. They're just going to go, oh, Assad bad, us good. And Alou, like Zoran Alouche, the guy who, one of the first big guys killed by the Russian airstrikes, he said, he, it was like the Mel Gibson tapes, but about uh, Shia and Christians <laughs> before, yeah, 2015 and 2016, when it became clear that they weren't just going to roll the the Syrian government that's when they were like, oh, um, well, you know, we kind of want an Islamic state, but, you know, figure it out. I, I think I think Arar al-Sham, I could be getting them mixed up with another group. They changed their uh, their objective around 2015 or 16 from a full caliphate to, you know, a technocratic regime with some Islamic qualities, which I don't I don't know what that means. But, uh, yeah, caliphate. 2.0. Yeah. <laughs> Caliphate with Chinese characteristics. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the other thing, the profile of the ISIS foreign fighter, yeah, it's impossible to get a consistent through line because, yeah, it's a lot of stupid and bored, pissed off young men. There was one guy in particular I loved. He was a German-Turkish MMA fighter, and he quit fighting to join ISIS 
And he, because he was still like, you know, a very Western person, he was still on Instagram and he goes, to all the haters who are criticizing me for joining ISIS, how about you relax and eat a banana? <laughs> and then he got killed like two weeks later. And it's Why like, a banana? You crazy kids. I don't know. I, I think it was a banana with some honey on it. And it's oh. like, that's too much glucose. <laughs> he got he got killed like within a month of that. And it's like, you should never like root for anyone in a war you're not involved in. But a little part of me was like, ah, oh, that guy had a little panache. And, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean... That was the problem when Zahran al-Aluch started saying things like, we are going to cleanse uh, Syria of uh, the Alawites and and the other Shia. It was, uh, the defense was always, well, that's for domestic consumption. And it's like, well, yeah, but where does domestic consumption stop? Like when you roll into their neighborhoods uh, and they're at your mercy, does it stop there? Um, But I think Islamic State took that audience issue to a really interesting uh, extreme, and in the long run, it may have hurt uh, the cause of of the Sunni militias in in Syria. But basically, what they did is, we're not going to sugarcoat anything for the Western media because we're not appealing to you. We're going over your heads, as it were. We're going for the people who have no interest in a civilian life in your cities, and some of the, the civilian lives were not all proletarian or not all drab and empty. I mean, there was a famous case of some uh, jihadi who turned out to be a big online exec in India. He wasn't going to go himself, but he sure wanted other people to go. Um, So again, they're hard to profile, but the idea of Islamic State was we're going for those people, and we're going to talk to 18-year-old males from a very S&M sensibility, which I understand. I understand completely that sensibility. And uh, we're not going to pretend to be uh, Democrats. We're not going to pretend to be nice guys. It had a huge impact. I mean, basically, all the social media had to prune them back and back and back until you couldn't say anything. It was like, I believe in Cal... For you dreaming. I mean, that, that was what it, what it came down to. You couldn't say caliphate anymore because I used to track the accounts, you know, and Khilafa or caliphate, that finally just got... Um, another thing I want to ask you about, um, obviously this is, it's been from the Western media's perspective and from here in America and like the, our sort of foreign policy apparatus, the thing that has been sort of the signature of the Syrian conflict are these chemical attacks. Uh, this is what we're focused on during the Obama administration. This was the red line that Obama, I think quite smartly did refuse to uh, enforce. He let them cross that red line. Now, in the Trump administration, there has been two series of airstrikes. Again, this most latest one, the stated reason is not that we think it'll help anyone in the civil war. It won't help Syrians. It won't end the war. But what we're doing is just stating that chemical weapons are so ghastly and awful that somebody's got to do something, and it, it, it has to be the West. It has to be America and France and the UK, just to say you can't do that. So ever since this beginning, it, like we've heard that Assad has been firing chlorine and sarin gas at civilian targets. There have been these atrocious gas massacres all over Syria, and it is very, very difficult to suss out what exactly is going on here, who is firing this gas, and for what reason. Seymour Hirsch had a big article saying that it was the rebels who did at least one of these. That's been disputed. 
again, like I can see it from both sides here, but like what, what from as you an observer, what is going on with these chemical weapons attacks? Who's doing them and why? Well, I think that was a really good summary you just did. And, uh, I'm ashamed to say I'm not sure I have very much to add. That is, you don't know and I don't know either. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm amazed at how many people suddenly seem to know about chemical weapons because, I mean, I, I used to be serious about weaponry before I decided war was about people. It's a people thing. <laughs> <laughs> I went for, for the soft line, but um, I used to peruse every issue of Jane's military, this and that, and memorize them. Unfortunately, I never got to chemical weapons because they, they didn't appeal to me. Um, well, you've seen the film The Rock, <laughs> that's how i learned no. about sarin gas <laughs> oh. you have not seen the rock really no. what's the rock you I, oh, all right oh. so <laughs> here we go i don't know a lot about real wars but i know about the ones on tv so there these u.s soldiers had kidnapped some vx gas and they put it uh in alcatraz and they hold the u.s government hostage with it they claim they're gonna launch it into the san francisco unless they pay him a bunch of money and they send sean connery and Nicolas Cage to stop them. Oh. So, yeah. So that's how I know. New- and they, VX, they were, they, VX is very bad. They were going to hit San Francisco because veterans kept getting bad Airbnb ratings. <laughs> well, they better study the wind patterns because they're going to hit Berkeley, which a lot of people might not mind. <laughs> <laughs> the wind from the bag blows inland most of the uh, time. Sorry. I, now that we've gone on this, uh, the rock digression. There, so there, in, in the movie, there are these nerve gas rockets. And the nerve gas are held inside the rockets in what can only be described as a series of anal beads. That's what this thing looks like. Uh, yeah, yeah. There are these big, bright, neon green strings of anal beads inside these rockets. Nick Cage calls it the elegant string of pearls configuration. Right. Wow. Okay. It, it, it came out uh, in the Chilcot report on British intelligence leading to MI6's sources for the Iraq war included a source who described... Saddam Hussein's chemical weapon arsenal as having the elegant pearl anal bead construction in sarin gas. It should go without saying that there is no such weapon in existence. Nerve gas is not stored in anal beads. He had seen the movie The Rock and told that to MI6, <laughs> which made it into their official uh, uh, intelligence Sa- dossier. Saddam, Saddam is hiring, is teaching uh, oil derrick workers how to become astronauts so they can wow. drill into an asteroid and get more uranium. <laughs> uh, but Saddam the, is studying face transplant the surgery. Pentagon, the Pentagon hired Michael Bay to come up with, not kidding, he hired Michael Bay to come up with potential terror attacks that they should guard against after uh. 9-11. <laughs> So that's basically all the same thing now. There, there must be a bunch of poor screenwriters who would appreciate a few <laughs> dollars getting kicked their way. I mean, I remember back in the 70s before any of this had happened, it was, there were a lot of really fun terror scenarios going. One of them involved Bruce Dern as some Black Sunday. Oh, Black yeah. Sunday, yeah. Uh, yeah. Going to blow a Zeppelin up over no, the No, he, was, the he, had, he had the bottom of a, of a, a blimp, blimp. Yeah. filled with flechette darts yeah. and C4 that would... Blanket the entire stadium with yeah. thousands and thousands of metal darts. Uh, yeah, it was funny. It was, uh, there was a scene of him just putting fl- flechettes in one by one, <laughs> humming a happy song. But, uh, yeah, well, okay, so well, why, I just, what I, do we know? I okay. just want to read real quick. This was yeah. from CNN just today. Uh, it says, 
even though U.S. intelligence, this is Barbara Starr reporting in CNN. Uh, even very though, impartial Barbara Starr. Even though U.S. intelligence agencies did not have absolute certainty Syria's regime had used the nerve agent sarin against civilians, the Trump administration still felt there were enough evidence to justify retaliatory strikes last Friday. The decision to proceed with military action met a standard of evidence needed that officials felt they could accept. It says here, the lack of complete information played a role in deciding to not strike a larger set of targets. But it says here, the U.S. did not have an analysis of test samples that suggested the presence of chlorine and sarin, but officials told CNN the U.S. was not able to obtain samples directly from the scene and ensure a strict chain of custody can conduct its own testing. So, again, make of that what you will. Clearly, people are being killed by chemical weapons in Syria. That that doesn't bear arguing. I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, okay, like, really? Okay. A lot of chemicals get involved. I mean, uh, an explosion is a chemical reaction, right? A lot of, a lot of battlefields are incredibly dirty things. I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a combat expert. I don't know. Uh, I know Carla Del Ponte is a fairly respectable person, and she was in charge of the UN's uh, Commission on uh, Crimes Against Human Rights in Syria. Her conclusion was that in the first highly publicized chemical attack, I, I think in Ghouta, near Ghouta, uh, that it was uh, sarin and it was used by so-called rebels against their own people, which is particularly horrifying. But it's, it's something that's very important in this war and that a lot of people don't fully appreciate yet. War has changed. Okay, In, in, in a Stalingrad war, you, the idea is to kill as many of the enemy's civilians, basically, as possible. That was the idea of most of the powers in World War II, kill as many of their civilians as possible and brag about it as much as possible. There's something a little different these days, and that came out during the so-called uh, Siege of Aleppo, which is uh, the, the effectiveness of what used to be called waving the bloody shirt. Of say, The British Empire sort of parent, pioneered this. Emphasize your casualties. Don't emphasize how many you've killed. Emphasize how many of your people have been killed in the most atrocious ways possible. So if like a British officer was killed in India or whatever, you, yeah. that would be mm-hmm. plastered on 2,000 Indians also got killed. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, yeah, yeah. The main thing is this guy and where he went to school and what his best friends thought of him and what his dog's name was. They were, <laughs> they were masters at this 150 years ago. Um, and so this, this is very important now because Syria is, is not Stalingrad by any means. Most people who could fight in Syria are not fighting. They're, they're out of this. Uh, and what's left is is very much a war in which you can swing things towards your side by bringing in someone from outside because your combat power on the ground is not very great. Uh, much better to have the American Air Force or the Russian Air Force or NATO Air Forces coming in for you. And the way to do not that is not to boast about how many you've killed, but <coughs> how many of your people have died. That becomes really tricky in a way I don't think people get, like – you remember Aleppo. There were no Western reporters on the ground in East Aleppo. None. Because they would have been kidnapped and or killed. Uh, it was just too dangerous to go. So they were not there, but they were reporting as if they were from there. And people were telling them, as any sensible person with a partisan side in this would, they're massacring us. They're killing us. They're killing children. They're, there were talks about mass rape. There were talks about all the sort of thing that uh, – happens and most horrifies people looking on from afar. It looks like most of those things didn't happen, but 
I didn't see anybody learn a lot of lessons from that. There, there's still this sense that the rebels are our side in Syria, and we report what they say without uh, without qualification. So I don't know. I mean, Del Ponte first said no in this first attack. I think the rebels did it to their own people to wave the bloody shirt to. Uh, create horror scenes that could then be used to get intervention. She said in the next attack, no, I think the SAA, the Syrian Arab army, the regime army, did this. And uh, it's hard to know what to make of that. It, uh, I would have guessed that they did it because Syrian command under Assad is devolved as, as it tends to devolve during a long, dirty war. But when we talked to Joshua Landis, whom I respect, he said, no, Assad signs off on every single decision. So if, if it was a regime attack that second time, it was with his approval. Uh, but again, nobody is there. And I, I remember Macron saying a few days ago, we're going to give you definitive proof. We're gonna, I didn't see any. It was, it was what we had before. It was reports from the scene. Well, operating at Macron's higher IQ than any of us, maybe he, he's conceived of it on some other timeline, some definitive proof. I mean... There is sort of a disparity in response, though, from the West. First, in something you've talked about, how we think chemical weapons are worse than dying from conventional attacks. But also, I mean, there are also several alleged uses of chemical weapons by rebel groups. I mean, Jayesh al-Islam is alleged to have hit Damascus suburbs with uh, mortars with chlorine in them and then done the same thing to Kurds. The Kurdish Red Crescent said that they... And the same symptoms that people from the recent attack reported. But you just don't get the same response from the West yeah. that we need to we need to and we have hit we have hit a lot of rebel groups, but we don't hit them for that. Yeah. I mean the US has a, a nasty history in Syria. Regime change has always been the order of the day for some groups within the American state. It's weird because it's it's not unified. And it's getting less unified, in fact. We talked to an American Special Forces guy who said, they're telling us we have to train jihadis and we're just not training them or we're training them wrong. Or, or, <laughs> yeah. Point the guns at yourself. At yourself. Yeah. Make sure to tuck your thumb firmly behind your fingers <laughs> yeah. when you throw a punch. Yeah. Now you're going to want to double jump when you see opposition. <laughs> they the, teach them wall hacks? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's oh, what, wall hacks are reserved for the Kurds. Okay. Well, right. I mean, we know... Well, yeah, the 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 absolute uh, disunity and confusion of U.S. policy there. There we have the famous cases of of uh, of militias that were backed by the Pentagon fighting militias that were backed by the CIA. Yes. Uh, but it seems like with the current bombings, people who are disputing the validity of these accusations of of chemical use, a lot of them are hearkening back to the Iraq War and the idea that we're building a case, but. It doesn't seem to me that there is any sort of unified will in America to go yeah. to the next level. Yeah. yeah. It seems like all of these it seems like it's really there they the Obama administration saw in classic technocratic Obama way, hey, we can give these guys some guns and overthrow these guys with a low small footprint, low cost, classic Obama style. Didn't work, went went crazy. Now They've kind of given up the idea that they can overthrow Assad, I think, realistically. Yes. So now it's basically how do we maintain our credibility? Yeah, that's so, a really good summary. Yes. Um, because what can you do on the battlefield? I mean, to a large extent, this has been settled on the battlefield. There isn't an infinite 
supply of wacky young men from Dusseldorf <laughs> <laughs> who are going to join That's when Fortnite State. came out. Those guys, <laughs> like, that's really what killed ISIS is recruiting forever. Oh, yeah, I just quickscoped one of those guys last night. The Syrian government controls most of what Russia, Iran, Syria, Hezbollah. There's a kind of unified command there, what they've decided they need to control. Um, Islamic State has been crushed in Iraq because in one of the more amazing turnarounds, that totally contemptible Iraqi army was reformed pretty much as a Shia militia only amped up and gunned up, and it took back Mosul. Raqqa was taken by uh, the Rojavan cat's paws, who I expect will be betrayed any day in a horrible way. And and what's there to do? I mean, the, the non-Islamic state militias are fighting for their existence. Most of them are hemmed in into Idlib. And Idlib is a really interesting kind of Jurassic Park thing within Syria. I mean, the, the jihadi terrain has been reduced to a very concentrated part of Idlib province where all these egos, and one thing you get in any uh, insurgency is massive male egos. They're all stuck in there with each other. And I don't know whether anybody did this intentionally or not, but that is a recipe for uh, getting them all to kill each other, which is what they're doing now. So what's, what are you going to do with them? There's nothing. You can't form a unified command out of them. Um, so what's going to happen? Basically, you can keep the chaos going. And that seems to be what most of the American state wants. Just keep the chaos alive. Keep Syria from coalescing into a, a real state again. Drain Iran, Iran and Russia. Yeah. Although the funny thing is, I mean, you keep hearing about Iran, but uh, Iran has played this smarter than anybody. Uh, it has had a very quiet war and a very effective war. I mean, those guys are good. Uh, that's, that When I hear about that, war with That is Iran, exactly why, by the way, Iran is considered enemy number one yeah. in the U.S. foreign policy set is because they're not stupid. Far from stupid. they're they're, yeah. they're good yeah. at what they do, yeah. Yeah. and that and thus you get them described uh, as Eli Lake described Iran as the biggest arsonist in the region, or <laughs> they've done more they've done more to destabilize the region than any other country, and it's just like when was the last time Iran invaded another country? Yeah, you yeah. know, yeah. That, I mean, that, there, this goes back to the old uh, American or or British. Why don't you put up your dukes and stand in front of the attack helicopters like a man? Because <laughs> uh, it's not smart. <laughs> um, but like uh, to Matt's point, uh, I was thinking about this and like obviously, so we've just had these airstrikes and it's hard not to feel you know queasy with any anything Trump does that involves military strikes in a in a region where Russia is also involved. However. And again, it's impossible to to miss the echoes of Iraq when it comes to, you know, our intelligence says this and he's killing civilians and has to be stopped. However, in the days since then, and, and even going back to the first time he did airstrikes in Syria, there's this weird, it seems like the American warmonger is strangely subdued yeah. because of this. Mm -hmm. And it's not out of shame because they certainly don't possess that. But I think Roy Ed Rosso said it best when he was writing this up. There's a strange lack of school spirit among these types now yeah. that is very hard not to notice. Yeah. And I think it's because the real diehard Trump base doesn't, doesn't want Syrian intervention. They're like pro Russia, pro Assad. So all you have are these people around Trump who are, 
you know, sort of trying to needle him into taking bigger and bigger bites out of this thing. But nobody really seems all that enthusiastic about it. Not it, completely different than Iraq and Afghanistan. That was yeah. everyone was 100 percent. The, the, the people who got on board with Iraq, like Dan Savage, got on board with <laughs> yeah. Iraq, like people that no one asked, you know, <laughs> but uh, John. How do you what do you make so far? I mean, whether it's these latest round of airstrikes in Syria, how do you what do you make so far of the Trump administration? And, you know, every every, you know, four to eight years, we get a new imperial manager. Obama sort of put his brand on it. What do you make of of, of the Trump administration as the manager of the American war machine? How how are they doing? What is that? Do they have a, a style or any any coherence whatsoever? I think everybody in this room would know better than me. I think, <laughs> I think you guys know America better than me. As I've said on the show, it's like there's this one country I just don't get anymore. Uh, <laughs> it's the one I lived my first 37 years in. Um, uh, and I really don't. I mean, it's, it seems like Obama was ultra cautious right down the line. And that just annoyed a lot of people here. And Trump doesn't have to be cautious at all. And a lot of people seem to like that. Uh, and uh, as I've said before, Trump doesn't seem to lose anything if he bashes uh, Russia or Syria, which makes it seem very likely he'll get into war with with Russia. Uh, because the, the analogy I always use is when uh, Junta took power in Ethiopia that was ethnically Tigrayan. The Tigrayans are the people of the north uh, near Eritrea. And uh, these people were getting grumbled about in, in the streets of the capital as a bunch of Eritrean uh, sympathizers, you know, their cousins are Eritrean. They love the Eritreans. So they went to war against Eritrea just to <laughs> prove that they were not a bu- soft on Eritrea. And I can see Trump doing that with Russia. What's he got to lose? I mean, I don't think Russia really has a lot of power over Trump. Uh, and in the same way, what's he got to lose if he bombs a few things in Syria? Which raises the other question, what got bombed? And uh, That's another thing that's very yeah, hard to figure out. It's very hard to figure out. Um, I mean, I was like, my eyes are bleeding reading the Wall Street yeah. Journal, which is like, the, you know, usually a, a paper of record, trying to figure out what exactly was hit and where and how. Yeah. And it's impossible. It's just completely vague. How do you, how do you spend opaque. 100 cruise missiles on, I mean, those things have 1,000-pound warheads. How do you spend 100 of those on the Syrian chemical weapons uh, <laughs> thing? Um, I mean, I once ran a speed lab, and it doesn't take that much stuff to do. Um, and the cops aren't even after them. I mean, all, all it takes is, you know, somebody's bathroom. I don't know how you make a chemical weapon. I don't know anything about it. I wasn't even very good at making speed. Um, but uh, I don't think it's worth 100 cruise missiles. Um, that The number seems to be kind of arbitrary. Uh, and then there's the number, how many got shot down? I don't know. It's, it, it is possible, by the, by the way, that many got shot down because a cruise missile is just a jet engine with a warhead and a GPS. That's all it was. It's a really old weapon from Jimmy Carter days. Um, at the time, it seemed really exciting. It can do like that Joy Division cover of like, you know, <laughs> going up and down with the with the landscape. But now that doesn't seem quite so world shattering. Uh, and, and they're not very fast. And from what I hear, you can hear them going away. And if you can hear them and see them, you can shoot them down. Maybe uh, they're very expensive still because they're Defense Department. Um, but what do you need a hundred of them for? Uh, I can't imagine that that there are that many high-value targets, and that's a problem the U.S. has had. We were designing weapons uh, for this totally imaginary war with the Warsaw Pact hitting high-value targets that mirrored our own, and nobody wants to play that game. 
And the defense establishment is horrified by that. Nobody wants to play fighter for fighter with the USAF. Nobody wants to play uh, tank for tank. Nobody wants to do any of those things. So you've got all these high-value weapons. And one of the things you may want to do with them is showcase them. That's worked for Russia really well. Russian weapons are hot now. I mean, big ticket items, and they're selling really well. And these the, are their anti-aircraft batteries. That's four hundred. Yeah. Right down the line, all, all. I mean, everything that they've given to the SAA, uh, they've given them better APCs, better artillery, better uh, artillery guidance system, better count, <laughs> counter battery fire stuff, and. Uh, They've just been advertising their own stuff that they may not give to Syria, but they're. If I don't know if you watch Russian videos, but give Russian weapons only videos only recorded from dash cams. Yeah, <laughs> but, they, but I've seen a few anti-aircraft missiles in those as yeah. well. Just traffic in uh, Moscow. That's true. Yeah, that was a meteor. Uh, <laughs> a lot of meteors seem to hit traffic jams. <laughs> anyway, um, but the Russians are very proud of these things, and I mean, this is a deeply humiliated former power, and and they're they're gonna be very proud of their weapons for a while, at least the young men are. And, and you get a lot of Russian metal and uh, Russian pop superimposed on uh, cluster bomb weapons uh, just depopulating a valley somewhere. I think that the, those, that, hundred, that overkill with the missiles, that just sounds like Mattis or someone trying to humor Trump. Yeah. Trump being, it has to be big. And they're like, yeah. well, it can't be too big because the Russians are there and we don't want to kill everyone on Earth. And he goes... But this isn't enough. And so they're like, well, we'll just send twice as many to the same number of targets because these are the ones we know are we've let them know ahead of time or whatever. We know it's not going to trigger anything. We'll just send twice as many. Is that good? And he's like, yeah, it's like when he they used the largest non-nuclear weapon, the Moab, the Moab in Afghanistan, totally unnecessary, yeah. just blew up a freaking hill. Because he wanted to see what it would look like. Yeah, yeah. So they've got these guys just basically humoring this man with all of the toys at our disposal. It's true. It's like a hundred cruise missiles on your head. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's a statement of intent. It's like we're serious here. It doesn't necessarily mean anything about the target. My impression is the one target that everyone wants to see hit hard in a way that will cause maximum casualties is Hezbollah. And that, I think, there are several reasons for that. Uh, Hezbollah was, for a while, the, the main infantry strength behind the Syrian regime. Uh, and Hezbollah flat out scares people who matter. It scares Israel. Uh, my impression, which I can't find anybody sharing with me, is that Israel is more scared of Hezbollah than of Iran itself. Uh, no, Amal Saad, who teaches in Lebanon, said that was true, that Israel has no problem well, with When Iran. was the last time like they tried they, when they had to go at Hezbollah oh, in 2006, right? 2006. Yeah. Is yeah. that when they learned that lesson? Yes. Yes. Um, that well, that's when they realized that their air force really didn't matter. Mm-hmm. And their they, Merkavas to a point, their yeah. Merkava tanks. Yeah, the first thing that happened in the war, 10 seconds after they crossed the line uh, into Lebanese territory, huge IED blew a Merkava 2 right into the air. Merkava 2 is supposed to be impregnable to just about anything but no they died well actually i'm, I'm glad you bring that yeah let's let's talk about hezbollah for a second how do they how do they fit into this fractal conflict because i mean like they're based in lebanon like how how are they how do they fit into this war and then they are certainly the 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 major uh they're they're the boogeyman for a lot of the israeli and american defense uh intellectuals yeah uh, hezbollah is a remarkable group uh Again, I remember when, when they came into being, and, and there was a time when the Shia of southern Lebanon were the poorest and most docile group 
in Lebanon. And, you know, Lebanon used to be this elaborate framework of sectarian communities that had a very fragile, delicate power-sharing agreement, sort of like New York City, I imagine, you know. Uh, And, like, you get an alderman and, okay, you guys get, uh, I don't know if they have aldermen, but, you know, like that. And uh, the Shia didn't even count in, in that arrangement. They were just the ignorant peasants of the far south and uh, of the increasingly the uh, underpaid workers of the suburbs of Beirut. Then the IDF rolled through southern Lebanon in uh, 1982. They weren't even the target. The target was, of course, the PLO, which was headquartered in Beirut at the time. But it turned out the PLO was a relatively easy target, and the people of southern Lebanon were not. I remember the first story I saw about this, which would have been a few weeks after the invasion in 1982, where um, a 17-year-old Shia girl in southern Lebanon got into a big old Plymouth packed to the rafters with explosives and drove it into an M113, the old American APC the Israelis were using at the time. And an Israeli colonel said, no Palestinian ever did this to us. I think we've offended the wrong people. And that was when Hezbollah began to coalesce around. Something weird happened. There, was a, there were other parties, Amal, for example, among the, the southern Shia. And Amal was seen as the resistance, but then it got overshadowed, first by a group calling itself Islamic Jihad, which was seen as an Iranian proxy, and then by Hezbollah. And um, soon after the U.S. intervened in Lebanon after the invasion went bad, after the massacres, uh, well, the invasion went bad from the beginning, but after Sabra and Shatila, the the massacres of Palestinian refugees, Hezbollah, with Iranian help, no doubt about that, with Iranian help, started hitting high-value American targets, and they did it better than anybody ever. We've mentioned it on the show before. Obviously, the, the, the Beirut Marine barracks bombing was like, that was a huge, you know, Apocal moment for the U.S. foreign policy. You know we couldn't believe that it happened. But also, and you've mentioned this on Warner before, they kidnapped and killed the head of the CIA, the head of the station chief in Beirut. That's pretty incredible. Kidnapped him, tortured him, killed him, uh, and you can bet that he told everything by the time he died because nobody holds out under torture forever, and they have all the time in the world. They also bombed a, a meeting of. CIA staff in Beirut uh, blew up about 25 people who actually mattered. Uh, It was an extraordinary run. And there are parts of the U.S. state, I've heard this from people still in that state, who do not forgive them to this day. A lot of of long memories there. Yeah, Yeah. very long. I've heard Mattis feels that way about the barracks bombings in particular. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't – you could say – uh, you were in a war, and it wasn't too smart to put 250 Marines in a high-rise with a nice little lobby that you could drive a truck into. I remember the guy in charge of security, Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Garrity, wasn't even punished for that. Uh, but uh, it it probably wasn't a wise move, and there was no reason for those troops to be in Beirut. They were just there as a way of, of telling uh, Israel and uh, what was left of the Lebanese Christian militias um, were behind you. Uh, But it wasn't a very reassuring way of doing that. Um, At the same time, uh, Hezbollah also hit uh, Bashir Jamal, who was the hand-picked Maronite leader of Lebanon as far as uh, 
the IDF and the CIA were concerned, he was gone. All they had left was his weak brother, Amin, and they put Amin up there, but he was no use at all. So the whole plan for the Israeli invasion was gone. This was not very well reported in the American media, that the whole, they'd alienated this, this huge group for no purpose. But that's what happened. The PLO moved to Tripoli, and so what? Uh, you now have to deal with Hezbollah, which is far more terrifying, far more resolute than the PLO ever was. And where do things stand with Hezbollah today, as of right now? For years, you know, you read waves of stories about coffins coming home to southern Lebanon, uh, the implication being they can't take any more casualties in uh, Syria. I've read those from 2012 when they first began to intervene. Well, they did. Uh, In fact, one of the great fallacies of war reporting is that there's some number X, which means unacceptable level of casualties. And there's no such number. There were 300 million people in the U.S. when 18 soldiers died in Mogadishu, and that was too many casualties. There have been other times, the U.S. Civil War, when 300,000 casualties was not too much, and they would have probably suffered another 300,000 and kept going. It was too many casualties for the Soviet Union in World War II. There's no such number. So the idea was Hezbollah is losing in Syria, losing men, um, because as far as I know, they were only using men. I'm not being sexist here. but uh, And that that would eventually bleed them out or cost them home front morale. And no, you don't even see those stories anymore. Didn't happen. Um, this is a group that's only recently awakened. And lot, like you see sometimes in insurgencies, it's kind of a good thing for the group. This is some, a group of people who used to train, who had been trained to despise themselves. And now they're standing on their hind feet and people are scared of them. And that's not always something bad for the group, or at least they don't see it. Well, um, before we, before we uh, let you go, um, we talked a lot about you know, the, the state of conflict in, in Syria and, and the civil war going on in, in the Middle East right now and American policy towards that. But I'd like to change directions for a little bit and engage in a little, a little game theory, a little, little war gaming with, with you, the war nerd, right now. And to talk about our own home country, you, you know, you said like, you have said that you've lived abroad for a while. You don't even understand America anymore. But if you can from, take your perspective from, from afar, from a removed casual observer, I'd like you to, I'd like to talk about this idea that I see uh, burbling up now in certain uh, precincts on the right and elsewhere, I should say, this idea that, you know, now with Trump, American politics have now gotten so poisonous and so polarized. We've never been this polarized before as a country that it may be time to just split up the United States. Uh, and then, and then of course the unstated assumption there being let's have it out in another civil war. I mean, if they insist, (laughs) if, if, if all the libs insist on not letting us go quietly, we'll put up, we'll fight. Whether it's the, uh, the guns thing or, or just the general, the, the idea that I think a lot of it comes from the fact that, Trump won this election. He surprised everyone. Everyone in the media surprised us. Nobody saw that coming. He won the presidency. All of his fans, you know, it was overjoyed. But they've discovered that that doesn't equal respect in the broader culture. 
they feel like they've won something, but they haven't been able to cash in on the prize that comes with winning yeah. it. And it, it, it's very upsetting to them, and it's very angering to them. So you begin to see more and more of these articles. There was one in The Federalist just last week that suggested just breaking up America into to soy land and real gunfucker country. So... They actually uh, used the soy, by the way. They did so say that's it was nice so, to soy see land. The, the outlight language uh, is Kurt now Schlichter in the has uh, written a, a, a sort of fictionalized, fictionalized version of this. He wrote, you, you two, wrote two articles and two books. Yeah. yeah. Based on this idea that, like, let's say blue states and red states, let's just say the West Coast, the upper Midwest, and Northeast become its own blue soy homo America. And then the rest of real America becomes the real America. Could you could you game out for us or just do a little thought experiment about what that split up would look like? Would what would a full civil war look like? Would there be irregular warfare? How would this conflict play out in your mind? Because for the people who are really giddy about this idea, they love the idea that in their words, one side has all the guns. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you think is that fool's gold when planning a potential civil war or insurrection? If well, I don't think small arms would decide it. And th- these people have a strange faith in small arms. You know, an AR-15 may be a, a big improvement on a 38 Special or a protest sign in terms of combat power. <laughs> but uh, if the enemy has drones with Hellfire missiles, uh, they don't have to come anywhere near you. Someone sits in a booth uh in Nevada or Virginia or wherever and just uh, wait for you to come out the front door. And depending on how much they hate you, they either wait until your kids aren't with you or they wait until your kids are with you. And uh, then you die and you don't have any idea what happened to you. Uh, I, I, I saw I saw one of the great uh, – I was I check in on Kurt Schlichter from time yeah. to time because he's my favorite one of those guys. He's He was uh, sort of like rear echelon infantry colonel during Bosnia. And so every time someone argues with him, he's like – Oh, really? I've fought for your rights uh, just sitting on a desk in Bosnia. Yeah. But uh, he he reposted this meme from somebody, and it was just like it's a fat guy in the middle of a field with an AR-15. He goes, oh, how's a how's a out-of-shape guy with an AR-15 going to beat the military, the government? And then it just the next panel is him aiming down the iron sights, and it's a, just bullet points, and it goes, wait for the driver to get out and take a piss shoot him in the head uh shoot 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 out the tracks you know with 5.56 ammo (laughs) shoot out the tracks of a tank yes oh it was just one of the most asinine fucking things i've ever seen it's not their best bet their best bet to me seems pretty obvious um knowing the people who joined the armed services in the wretched 70s when i got out of high school um you work with those people like i said war is a people thing and uh you you the, the one issue, the one issue that would matter in the first months of a war like that is where do the armed forces break? Yeah. Who do they go with? Now, they're going to have a lot of links to those to that guy in the cornfield, uh, but not everybody in the army thinks that way. And the real nightmare in a war like this is the armed forces break up and some units go with one side, some go with another. Uh that certainly happened during the U.S. Civil War. Uh, some commanders go with one side, some go with another. You know, George Thomas, the maybe the greatest commander of the U.S. Civil War, yeah. was, a, was a Virginian. He went with the Union. Uh, other Virginians did not. Um, and that was when things were relatively simply divided. There was roughly a north-south thing. There weren't 
that many radical slave owners in Maine. There weren't that many abolitionist preachers in Georgia. Uh, none, in fact. But uh, it's not going to break that simply now. There's yeah. just no way. Yeah. Well, isn't, that like real, isn't that like the, the real lesson of all these fantasies is the idea that it would break down by state where it, like, it would be like the Mason-Dixon line and then the two sides would face off against each other, whereas it's actually much more likely to become like Syria, which well, is it's like a, it's the a, cities are slaughterhouses. Yeah, urban, and then like, well, it's an urban-rural divide, basically. Yeah. Uh, if, you, if, if it ro- rose up, you couldn't defend a state because your major cities are going to be filled with people who are who are sympathetic with the soy people because right. all the major cities everywhere even in the even in the real america red states, yeah. are filled with a lot of people and they are largely uh, soy based they are in fact with a vengeance i i taught in vegas for a year and i was I'd been a punk in, in uh, Northern California where it was like, yeah, so what? <laughs> You'd be a punk in Vegas. Uh, it's serious. I mean, <laughs> those people actually fought, like literally fought because they would get stopped on the street. And yeah, there, there are little factions in those deep red states that are angry enough to fight for the cities. Uh, of course, the soy thing brings back a really interesting question because this is news to me. I, I thought... Farmers grew the soy, and I thought farmers were part of the red side. I, I don't it's know. Weird. Uh, farmers grow the soy, but the uh, the hipsters, latte drinkers, consume it and become feminized as a result. Yeah, it's, this yeah, is yeah, the yeah. latest thing in America. Uh, yeah, that, it, to be like the Tony Montana of soy. <laughs> like, I'm feminizing everybody. I'm getting rich off this shit. Push <laughs> yeah. it to the limit. Raise his hand in back row. But if they stop buying the soy, won't your red state farms go bankrupt? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, uh, if if real red blooded Americans can't eat soy, then you're out of business. I don't know. But anyway, like I said, I don't know. But I would think uh, the the really brutal reality would be the armed forces would divide. They would divide in a generation ago. They would have divided strictly on ethnic lines. I mean, let's be blunt about yeah. it. That's how it would have been. Mm-hmm. I get the sense in America that it's not quite that simple anymore. That things are not quite as brutally segregated as they were when I left. They might therefore divide on belief lines. I can imagine church-based militias controlling large parts of uh, small town and, and rural America. And there, if that's the way things are to divide, then uh, the urban centers might develop their, their own quasi-churches uh, as a response. And what it would really come down to is so different from what these survivalist people imagine that y- you have to laugh, really. First of all, I'm from California. It comes down to water. Everything in California comes down to water. You can sit in your suburban house uh, with three AR-15s. You've got one. Your spouse has one. Your worthless cousin is finally you know, manning the back door because you don't think anybody will come that way. And so what? First, you've got to sleep, uh, and you don't trust your cousin when he's asleep. Any group can beat any individual and uh, the gangs would very quickly rule, not using gangs in the Fox News style, but whatever constituted a gang in this world, a larger group of people than you've got. They might well be church militias in the beginning stages, um, but you might also see, as you've seen in many insurgencies, university militias. <laughs> that would be kind of fun. Give those undergrads something to do that really <laughs> gets them excited. I'm just like thinking about my own ethnic group, like, not even Jews in New York would be unified. Yeah. You would have like every you would have Chabad versus regular ortho, ultra orthodox then the secular east upper east side Jews 
And I wouldn't even be in that because then the Midwest Jews and coastal Jews would hate each other for other reasons. I, I, I'm imagining the idea of Brett Stevens being killed by a university militia. <laughs> like, this is what I was warning about. I'm not an asshole. Oh, Brett Stevens won't stop talking about college students. Uh, yeah, I, gotta I, say, I think I, that would is... happen fast because I think these people read college students all wrong. I had to deal with them for a long time. I think they've been temporarily told to damp the uh, machismo in public, but uh, it's there about one millimeter underneath. And there would be, there were some great Bolshevik killers straight out of the universities. And I think that would happen again. I mean, we don't want the civil war to happen, but if there are university militias, imagine the quality of production that goes into a RISD beheading video. (laughs) (laughs) And and who's going to be better at drones and homemade hellfire missiles. I mean, you may, you've got your AR 15, but in, I mean, I don't think Popular Mechanics is going to tell you how to make one yeah. of those. M- the I mean, MIT group, they're going to be ferocious. Those Boston Dynamics dogs. Oh, God. Yeah. C4. That, my, our, our greatest dream, murdering a Boston Dynamics dog. <laughs> oh, the SEC schools, the SEC football schools, they become the shock troops? Yeah. But Holy the, shit. The, I might actually follow college football for once <laughs> this thing happens. The thing that I think that they really don't, because you're right, yeah, resources are the thing that they're not figuring on because they live, most of these guys are, are suburban. They imagine themselves to be survivalists, but they, but they, they just, they buy their affectations in the catalog and it comes to them because the mail shows up every yeah. day and they go to the restaurant and the food's there and they go and they get their, uh, their Crestor and it's always at the pharmacy. The day that those things stop showing up in your subdivision because the distribution lines have been cut, that is something that I don't think any of them have thought about for a second. No, no. Like you'd want to live near a river. Um, if you don't live near a river, you're especially in the West, you are in trouble. Um, where does your water come from? I mean, there, there are... You know, in, in Northeast Washington, there are these huge corporate farmers who always produce the most right-wing candidates in the elections. And somebody pointed out about halfway through one election cycle, don't you get every drop of water on those gigantic fields of wheat out of government dams and flowing down through government pipelines that have to be maintained endlessly before you can grow a single stalk of wheat? Because they don't think that way. They think, you know, I'm the last real man mm-hmm. in this mm-hmm. state. Uh, in the West, there's there's only Seattle, and it would be an expensive lesson. But there would be a kind of pleasure in seeing. That's not how it's going to shake down. Uh, something similar happened in the American Civil War. There was like Yankees are effete, urban losers, and I'm worth ten Yankees. That didn't turn out to be true, uh, especially in the West. In the West, in the Civil War, one Yankee was worth about two Confederate soldiers. Uh, I mean, those, those Ohio and Indiana guys, they, they kicked ass just one-on-one. In the East, the Union generals for a long time were so god-awful that you, know, you couldn't really tell. But it just didn't shake down that way. Any belief that because I talk a lot and I hang out with my friends who also talk a lot and we clean our weapons together that, that I'm worth 25 software engineers is just bullshit. In all honesty, the Midwest would eventually be the victors of an American Civil War. People from Ohio are the biggest fucking psychos I've ever met in my life, and I mean that in a good way. Minnesota, I mean, Minnesota is the only state where no one gets mad at them for having a Confederate flag in their state house because they stole it during battle. Ah, yeah. Like these, no, they're they're they. Some of, some Midwesterners are all talk. The guys who argue about copper wiring theft on Facebook, but that's everywhere. But 
most of them are the craziest fucking people you've ever met, and they're just very soft spoken. And also, the talk- sweetest bitch you'll ever meet. Sweetest bitch you'll ever meet, but crazy, <laughs> and they just want to talk to you about new monster flavors coming out. But they'll <laughs> kill twenty people in front of you. And that's assuming nobody else got involved. I mean, the U.S. doesn't live uh, in isolation anymore, right? There, how, there quickly are a lot of China, are, how quickly would China get involved in that? Yeah, they, they could take a big bite out of the West Coast, well, maybe. How, how could you resist? You you just want to say, well, let's see here, um, because you would play with factions, and you often play with a weaker faction against a stronger faction because you know that uh, if they lose, they uh, you, they owe you everything, and you want to weaken the strong faction, and then when they start to get weaker. You side with them again. And eventually you bleed the whole place white, as it used to be said. And this is not right. This is from corpses going that way when all the blood's out of them. And uh, that's what would happen. Well, um, we, are, we are on record as supporting uh, President Xi and his vision. One true. belt, one road. You can bring the belt to the United States. We'll support you. So if the shit goes down, if you want to drop some crates... Of, uh, of of Chinese AKs to us, we will we will all the way down the line. Uh, support I would you. like. I personally would like an AN ninety four. I like the two two round burst. But so, President Chi, anything you give us. This is a Vision of the Feed podcast, malicious. Join oh. up. It's like Starship Troopers. I'm, do, I'm doing my part. I, I'm signing up for aged propagandists with health problems um, <laughs> who are in the most secure bunker you have. <laughs> I mean, we wouldn't last long, but I, I, I know we could take Pod to Save America before well, we went down. Yeah. Done. Yeah, no. Done. They're, they're coming at us with conventional arms. I think the Joe Rogan network might triumph over everybody. No, they'd beat up. No, no, yeah. yeah. The Joe Rogan fans would, they would be Way spraying. more of them. They'd be spraying some shape. sort of uh, aerosolized DMT. DMT. <laughs> causing all of their opponents to just have ego death and be, be revert to childhood. And, and they wouldn't even have to kill anybody. Yeah. But we would get Pod Plus America before Pod yeah. Save America. I hate saying that because it's not a fucking phrase. Pod Save America. They're going down. Yeah. I think the final, no, their their wine mom Sadukor sock troops would be uh, very dangerous. <laughs> what it, yeah, but wait until they fight the Mark Maronites. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right. Perfect. Well, um, John, before we let you go, uh, could you talk a little bit about about the Iliad? Yeah. The best war of all time. Yeah, it is. Um, only you know it has to be presented right, and that brings me. To if only Iliad. someone would. Yeah, if only someone would make... <laughs> There's a, got to be a better way to read the Iliad. And indeed, there is. Popiel's Iliad. Uh, in this case, uh, the War Nerd Iliad by John Dolan, a modern prose translation of Homer, Homer's Iliad by Feral House Books, with this really cool cover uh, of Athena as she must have appeared in her fearsome glory, done by a Turkish artist and War Nerd fan, Memo Kosinen. Uh, and... What I've tried to do in this Iliad is tell the damn story. And uh, to do that, I haven't tried to reproduce the prosody of the original Iliad, uh, which a lot of people have invested a lot of useless effort doing because ancient Greek does not resemble uh, 21st century American English in any way. Um, you can't do the prosody. You can try to do the prosody and you will sacrifice anything else. And that's that's what's happened with most translations You've sacrificed the fact that this is a readable story and, in fact, a really good story. I think for me, what made me willing to do this is that I'm a science fiction nerd from way back, and uh, I've read 
books like Lords of Light, where Roger Zelazny took the uh, Hindu uh, Buddhist schism and made it into a beautiful off-world war story. So I, I know that this can be done. And, you know, I actually went back and read uh, the the Holy Writ about that and realized, well, Zelazny's was way better. Um, <laughs> and here, uh, when you try to render this in into this culture, not just out of that culture as the Classics Guild does, but effectively into this culture, you get a great story. And I know a lot of people who had to study the Iliad. I don't know anybody who got to the end. Um, <laughs> everybody claims to have encountered it, but you know, I fought the Iliad and the Iliad one is the way it goes. <laughs> it doesn't have to be that way at all. This is a beautiful story. So I, I just thought I'd, I'd read in order to sell books and no other reason, I'd read a little bit. This is uh, from the first part of the Iliad where Agamemnon, who contrary to what you may have been told in college, is the slimiest, craziest bastard who ever commanded an army. I played Agamemnon in a sixth grade play. What, did you do him as a slimy, sleazy bastard? I did him as very pompous. I played yeah. him as very arrogant until he gets killed by his wife in the bathtub. Yeah. Well, the one time he shows any compassion is when his brother Menelaus uh, gets wounded. And Menelaus is so embarrassed he has to tell him, stop it, you're scaring everybody. Go, Because uh, he could care less about anybody in the army. He insults a priest of Apollo, and you don't do that with Apollo. Uh, I, I had a really good time with Apollo. He's a great character. So here's Apollo. Apollo hates the Greeks. He's been flexing his bow, waiting to be provoked. And now Agamemnon has given him the perfect excuse to send some poison arrows at the Greek campfires on the shore. Apollo laughs, glittering like sun on the waves. Thank you, Agamemnon. You are my favorite Greek. Apollo is as good at drawing out the pain as Agamemnon himself. So he doesn't kill the Greeks immediately. That sort of quick, easy death is something only an amateur would do. Apollo wants to have some fun with Agamemnon, just the way Agamemnon likes to have fun with the slave girl. And he wants to make it last. So he starts killing everyone in the Greek camp, but to increase the terror, draw out the agony. He starts with the animals. First the mules, tied up near the beach boats. He sends virus arrows fizzing and sizzling down through the mules' thick hides, easy as a needle going through flax. The mules' eyes cross, their muzzles foam, they kick and squeal and topple over. By the time the slaves wake at dawn, the Greeks' mules are lying stiff as fallen trees, legs splayed out at every angle. Then the dogs. If there's one thing these little Greek kings love more than their mules, it's their dogs. Friends on the hunt, the one contribution they deign to make to feeding their people. Friends at the feast, toss them a hunk of bone and gristle before passing out drunk. Friends in battle, providing a little comic relief, biting the corpse his master has just made, lapping up the enemy's pooling blood. Oh, they love their dogs. So Apollo sends its fizzing bows, festering with tiny malevolent life into the dogs. The hounds howl and twitch and die on the beach, ending lineages longer and purer than their masters. But this time, smarter Greeks see the trend. Mules, dogs, not hard to figure out who's next. And sure enough, men begin to die. Apollo starts bottom up again, commoners first. He loves this game, he even deigns to coalesce become visible for a fraction of a second, just above his chosen targets. A man will look up and see him as the envenomed dart dissolves in his flesh. Their expressions are hilarious. Soon the unburied bodies are swelling up and bursting with a terrible smell all over the camp. 
the Greeks can only sit in their tents, feeling for sores, bumps, some signs they'll be on the next cremation pile. Ladies and gentlemen, John Dolan, the War Nerd, everybody. Please uh, check out the War Nerd podcast if you haven't already. And please... We stole our business model from them. I mean, <laughs> uh, fucking honestly, like, we saw the one free, one premium thing. We're like, hey, that's yeah. a good idea. So, Seal yeah. away. That's what the business is about. I just wanted to say one more thing, which is there'll be two events promoting this Iliad. I'm trying to be a good uh, you know, literary entrepreneur here. So uh, the first is Tuesday, May 2nd, NYU. At, uh, it'll be co-hosted by Liberal Studies and the Classics Department at NYU at 4 to 5.30 p.m. Uh, that's May 2nd, NYU, 4 to 5.30 p.m. The second one is Wednesday, May 23rd at the Red Room at KGB Bar, 7 to 9 p.m. John, thanks so much for joining us. Okay. Thank you. Your, that, been, I was my pleasure. It's been your chapo. Okay. Cheers, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye.